There's still suffering that's going to happen, but we're going to be doing it in a way that God is going to heal us better. You know, He's going to bless us. There's going to be something, um, a path that He's asking us to walk rather than we're breaking off completely and doing our own thing here that goes against the, the moral law. So let's look at that. Let's look at that kind of pain. And then we can talk about redemptive suffering and, and how we can uh, take this pain, but have it um, be redemptive for everyone involved. And so there's so many ways we can we can talk to people who, who hopefully will trust us and see that we have their, their best interests at heart. What role do human relationships play in God's plan for the world? How do we approach difficult, even toxic relationships with clear truth but unwavering love? In this episode, Catholic author and speaker Layla Miller shows us how, even when redeeming a relationship seems impossible, we can overcome adversity if we have the courage to do the right thing at the right time. But again, that's where the church comes in to just basically say, you know, there is a truth and, it, and we can use our reason to know what that truth is. And uh, it, you know, even an atheist could see it. This is not something that you need revelation, divine revelation to see that there are male you know, and there are female. By embracing the gift and power of marriage, family and human sexuality, we can help heal ourselves and the world, replacing fear and despair with courage and peace. This is Living the Call. Layla Miller, welcome to the show. Thank you, Deacon. I'm really excited to be here with you. I was just in your neck of the woods literally hours ago, if you can believe that. Where were you? Around Phoenix? I was I was in uh, Sky Harbor. Isn't it Sky Harbor, the airport? Yep, there? that's right. Yeah. I was flying back from visiting my wife, who is taking care of my father-in-law in Ohio, in Columbus. And so she's there for a few weeks, and uh, my connecting flight was through Phoenix. And I was like, oh, well, I should just get out and uh, go say hello in person, and we can do this there. But here I am. That would have been fun. <laughs> yeah, for sure. You know, I had an opportunity to have a, a very unexpected experience out there. Um, in we, we, we took uh, yesterday for Mass, we went to Cincinnati to the cathedral there, which is beautiful, by the way, um, St. Peter in Chains. And we drove across the border uh, into Kentucky and we checked out uh, the Ark Encounter. Are you familiar with this? No. The big Noah's Ark, the thing that's been like, it, oh, it's... Like a life-size duplicate of, a replica of the... Yeah. Exactly. Okay, yeah, I've never heard of that. It's a, I mean, it's literally, you know, using the Old Testament measurements of the, I think, 300 cubits or 200 cubits, whatever it is, but it's 500 feet long. It's about 50 some odd feet high, 80 feet wide. And the inside is, I mean, they spent a fortune on this. It's really beautifully done. Very, very well done. Um, I mean, it's not Catholic, but, um, you know, it can't be perfect. So, <laughs> but, uh, but it's a really beautiful experience. Um, and I was thinking in that, and, uh, you know, the idea of talking to you, uh, was on my mind, obviously, because that was yesterday and this is today. And I was thinking about in this in this experience that they shared of the ark, obviously it's a lot of it is focused on Noah, but they talk a lot about the um, you know the, the creation of humanity and the importance of Adam and Eve. And mm -hmm. one of the thoughts that I had was, you know, wouldn't it be amazing if we did a sort of avatar or Titanic level feature film about the Adam and Eve story? That would be incredible. That would be incredible. I spend a lot of uh, time uh, thinking about what what was created in the garden and why and how and because I do a lot of natural law stuff and how how God's design was just so 
perfect and rightly ordered. And so that would actually be pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. Well, and in the in the in the popular culture, you know, you need some things that kind of soften the earth. And I was thinking, maybe it's not the only thing, but a big, beautifully done, beautifully rendered story of our first parents could help kind of highlight the beauty of that creation and also the beauty of marriage, right? Uh, which I know you spent a lot of time focused on. Huge amount of time on marriage, right? And you know, going back to that that garden when when God created everything, He created. As far as human creation, um, I always say it comes down to three things. He created life, human life, and he created uh, marriage, and he created them male and female. So those were the yeah. all the things that were just foundational in human beings and for us. And in that created order, God's design for us is in that first perfect created world in the Garden of Eden. And everything that's gone wonky, everything that's gone crazy since then <laughs> is can be traced back to um, rejecting one of those goods, you know, and 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 throwing them off track. And and Satan can kind of tempt us to invert the things that that God created and his created order is once it's inverted, you know, then we're off on a different track. So that's that's kind of our touchstone, you know, to go back to and, and we're thinking about things and say, wait a minute, okay, is this does this comport with how God created things before the fall. Because, of course, we know that was yeah. perfect. That's how he intended it. One of the points that this exhibit in Kentucky made was this idea of here's everything that was happening, you know, kind of uh, pre-flood, right? This sort of humanity that had gone off the rails, that was rebelling against its creator, that didn't value the things that were there imbued in nature and in relationships. And God sort of acted right in the in the manner of the flood and one of the things it said was sound familiar when when you when you look at this now right um and you've been doing this kind of ministry for a while do you think historically as it relates to marriage um and that understanding of complementarity and the beauty of male and female woven into all of creation are where are we historically in terms of our distance from that truth, right? Are we like super wonky, never been wonkier? Or are we like somewhere that we've seen before historically, but still pretty bad? Like, where do you peg it? Okay, so I'm not saying I'm right in my answer to you here, but I think we're in uncharted territory uh, because I don't think we've ever quite gotten to the point where um, we've denied everything that God created in the garden. So b at least for a while, you know, maybe we were only rejecting um, the inviability and the beauty of human life. You know, okay, people kill each other or we have abortion or things like that have been going on for a long time. <laughs> um, and m marriage, you know, I mean, a small segment of people even throughout all of history have have messed up with marriage and they've they've not seen it as permanent. Um, they've not mm -hmm. seen it as procreative. They've not seen it as conjugal, but usually even even that for pretty much for most of recorded history, even non-Christian societies have seen it kind of for what it is. You know, it's for having uh, a, a man and a woman and, and, and a family and babies. And um, and now we're getting to a point where we are denying the male and female part of creation. Mm -hmm. And that's mm -hmm. really different, I think. You know, people say, oh, no, it's always been like that. Well, no. Not really. I mean, at most, almost every society, 
we'll see a difference in their men folk and in their women folk. I mean, men and women have, by nature, we just naturally understand that there's a difference. Uh, it's so primal. It's so basic. So now we're getting to a point where we're throwing that off and saying we can't really know what that is. We don't even know our own nature as you know, male or female as God created us, as every society has seen it. Um, not just obviously, not just Jewish or Christ Christian societies. So I think we're in really weird times. <laughs> that yeah. um, nothing is firm. There is no foundation for anything at all. If you can deny hmm. even your own biology, even what is em empirically or you know, ontologically true and undeniable, undeniable in science, undeniable uh, just you know, in, in, intuitively that we know. So, so I do think it's kind of a weird, I think we're, we're in a, in a new space. <laughs> yeah. Well, sadly, that sounds very reasonable what you just said. Um, I do think, and it's a different way for me to think about it because I don't think I had that this idea of, you know, historically there's been, you know, look, we are fallen man and our nature, um, you know, is such that we're going to rebel and do things that, you know, take us, you know, from God, and that's happened throughout history. But this idea of kind of denying the underlying foundation of everything, right? So this sort of real sense of, um, uh, I guess you'd call it kind of relativism, maybe, or whatever you call it, but just the sense that, you know, even the idea of man or woman is up for debate is probably, you're right, I think something of a very new vintage. Yeah, at least on this scale, it has to be. I mean, there, there might have been pockets where you know, they like to say, people that argue for this type of ideology, they like to say, oh, no, no, this has always been the case. And um, I don't think you can really find it in any significant part of any culture or world, you know, era, epoch before ours. Um, and this now is trying to get some global traction. Um, so yeah. it's it's on a scale that we've never seen. And, and I, you know, I'm not that, I mean, I guess I'm getting old. I'm in my, you know, mid fifties, but I grew up in the eighties. It's not, that wasn't that long ago. And we were still pretty much a sinful, it was a sinful time, but I, I don't recall, you know, even in my memory that people would think to question whether they were a man or a woman. Like that is very, very new. Um, that's even been shocking to my generation and, um, I don't know how it's going to play out with these younger generations because they've been, it, it's been completely ingrained in them from the time they're babies now that it's okay yeah. to question whether you're a boy or a girl and things like that. So that that was never the case. You know, we, don't, we didn't have birth certificates that said, we're not sure or leave it open or put an X or let the child figure it out later. I mean, science wasn't even denying the obvious at that point. So, so we have this, um, cultural and, um, you know, political issue and, and, and people are very confused, but, mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't seem to be slowing down, but again, that's where the church comes in to just basically say, you know, there is a truth and, it, and we can use our reason to know what that truth is. And, uh, you know, even an atheist could see it. This is not something that you need revelation, divine revelation to see that there are male, you know, and there are female human beings. Is there, is there a moment along the timeline, though, if you, you just cited the, mid, the 80s as an example, that even coming up in the 80s, you didn't have those kind of things. And yet here we are, right, kind of questioning these very foundational things. Is there a moment of inflection in that timeline where you're like, oh, from here... 
it kind of accelerated? Or has this been, to your mind, just a kind of a gradual thing that, that we are where we are because of just iteration, iteration, small cut, small cut? Yeah, I've thought about that. And I've always... I, I know, and I've known, even in college, you know, there was kind of some rumblings. I, I went to college in the late 80s, um, that there were some rumblings of, you know, um, well, maybe one of my friends, this guy, you know, maybe he's gay, you know, or, I mean, there was kind of a, and I went to a, a Jesuit Catholic university, um, but it wasn't that open, like where people would say, you know, oh, I'm gay or it, so it was, it was just beneath the surface and be like, we knew there were, you know, homosexual people and, but it wasn't kind of um, something that, when I first started having my children, for example, in the early 90s, it wasn't a thing out there in the culture where you'd see it in children's books or children's TV shows or in the schools, or it just wasn't really uh, still there. But but there was an undercurrent of, okay, I know that people are trying to do this thing called like gay marriage. I know that that there's a movement out there, but it's it's not a big movement, but it's out there. But um, it wasn't huge. And, and in fact, you know, even in the culture, even both sides of the political aisle would say, no, defense of marriage, it's male and female. That was in the 90s, you know, with Bill Clinton. So it wasn't a big deal. Then things kind of picked up, you know, and social media, I think, also took off. You know, once you get social media going, you've got so many, just so much of a cacophony and, and kids are now involved in, in, in getting into um, edgy things and they're hearing things. And so that was able to pick up some steam as a movement. But what I do think happened is once the Supreme Court, you know, did the, I think it was um, 2015, I think it was that gay marriage was legalized or made uh, um, on par with marriage, something happened then. And, and what happened mm -hmm. was that immediately, and I mean almost immediately, then the transgender ideology hit the ground running. It wasn't like, okay, let's rest on our laurels. We've got this great victory where now everybody can marry, you know, who they want. Uh, it, it didn't stop. Then it picked up steam. So I always look at it as, um, cause I'm always looking in as far as like, is this the spirit of God or the spirit of the devil? Because what, what's the spirit I'm, I'm, I'm that we're seeing. And I always say, if you yeah. see something that's very frantic and very frenetic and very frenzied and very furious, you know, all these F words, um, that's not the spirit of God. And, and all of a sudden, it got loud, it got violent, you know, as far as a frenetic violence type thing. And this thing just came down on us. It's like, it's not good enough that the culture accepted gay marriage, let's say, uh, even though it was from, from the top down, it really wasn't that it was a grassroots thing. But now that that's there, now we're really going to slam you. And now we're going to come in with something even more unbelievable and that it would be even harder to, to grasp. And it's coming fast. So that I think has picked up a lot of steam. I just it, it immediately picked up steam, and I think it, it um, again it's a supernatural battle that we're waging, and it does go back to yeah. uh, the garden. And and if I could say one more thing about that, the, the what what Saint John Paul II said is if you look at what Satan was targeting in the garden, he was targeting the fatherhood of God. If he can cut us off from God, our father, then he has us, right? He, if he can break that relationship, then he has the souls of, you know, into darkness. And so if you cut off, um, you know, marriage from male and female, for example, well, you, you can cut off fatherhood because fathers aren't needed. It's not necessary for marriage. It's not necessary for child rearing. 
And then if you can go so far as to say, even male and female don't mean anything and they're interchangeable and it doesn't, there's no way you can tell. And you've also cut off fatherhood. You've cut off the idea of fatherhood as being important or different. So all I see is that what JP2 said, which is if you can, if, if original sin, he said, is about denying the fatherhood of God. So everything that the devil's been doing since then is just trying to get us to not understand fatherhood and not understand who God is. So it, to me, it makes it makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense from a, you know, obviously very Machiavellian mind, which of course, you know, he has, but the idea of attacking fatherhood is the very top of that pyramid and the things that kind of flow from it, if you're effective, are going to be, you know, in the win column for you if that's what you want, right? So it makes sense as a stratagem to do that. I just finished reading Dorothy Day's autobiography. It's called From Union Square to Rome. Mm. She's a I think she's a servant of God. She's not quite a venerable yet, but I, I, I had not read any of Dorothy Day's um, works. And I was so impressed by the things that I read about her, but especially coming from um, this kind of background of really being a radical communist mm-hmm. for a very long time. And then putting that stuff aside and embracing the church, she wrote this book trying to explain to the former communist people that she was, you know, her friends, why she converted. And one of the things that she says which I'd love for you to respond to, you've just touched on it a second ago, is this idea of brotherhood, which if you're you know, in a kind of socialist communist construct, is a very vaulted virtue, right? This exalted virtue of brotherhood and locking arms and solidarity. But the way that she put it was, you can't have the brotherhood of men without the fatherhood of God. Right. And it, I, w- when I first read that, Layla, my thought was, we should have that on like a billboard and everybody, you know, who's advancing a lot of these different things who may not know what they're actually doing in the grand scheme would really benefit from that understanding because they objectively know that brotherhood and solidarity is good. But if you were to ask them why, I'm not sure you would get a good answer. Right. What makes someone a brother, right, is that we have the same father. Uh, and that's what makes a family. Um, that's the foundation of everything. So yeah, she's absolutely right. I mean, that's, that's beautiful. Um, yeah, this, this horizontal kind of thing that we're doing, which is just, just looking to our left and right at our brothers and sisters and, but we've stopped recognizing why we're here as brothers and sisters and who is our father and what, you know, our filial response to our father. And, um, that has been, wildly successful. I mean, it it really has. It has made us think only of the things down here. Um, And we have forgotten to look up. And if if the whole point of this life, you know, is to journey together with our brothers and sisters, but ultimately, you know, just our own soul is going to meet God, but we're going to meet God, our father. We're going to meet him face to face. And um, if we've forgotten him the whole time that we're here, you know, he's, I mean, what did Jesus say? You know, he's going to possibly say, who are you? I, I don't even know you. So we have to be looking up to know and understand who our, our brothers are and to love them better too. So all of that is, you know, I don't think that we're um, taught that anymore, that um, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something a little controversial here, but it's really shouldn't be controversial. Oh, goody. I know. <laughs> the, <laughs> I'm just the, kidding. Um, there's the feminist movement has worked really hard to kill the idea of patriarchy or to uh, destroy it as some sort of evil that we have to, um, you know, I know, I know Catholic feminists who say, kill the patriarchy. We need to kill the patriarchy. And I'm thinking, 
what are you talking about? I mean, God is a patriarch, you know, uh, we, we pray in the litany of St. Joseph that he is the patriarch, you know, a patriarch. We, have, we talk, we are a, a, a faith of patriarchs, um, of fatherhood, and it doesn't negate motherhood. It actually is a compliment, obviously. It exalts it. Exactly. You, it, it, you, you, you have a father and that implies you have a mother. Um, and we know that we know as Catholics that we have our, our blessed mother and we have our church is our mother. So it's not denigrating motherhood or, or the maternal, but if you kill the father, you know, you've put a stake in the heart of the family and whether that's the family of brotherhood on earth, religion and, uh, and, or even a secular brotherhood, you, you can't have that without your dad. Um, so we have this mindset, which is patriarchy is bad. Patriarchy is bad. And it's like, um, no, it's kind of the design. <laughs> Again, going back to yeah. the garden, it's kind of the design and it's kind of good. Um, anything that, any way that it's been twisted or used uh, in a sinful way, well, obviously re we reject that, but we reject sin on its face. We reject sin everywhere we find it. But we don't reject the design of the church, which is patriarchal, you know, what, what, what do we have? We have priests and, and the hierarchy that are men. Uh, we don't reject God, who is a, the ultimate patriarch or any of our patrimony. Um, so all of this, we're trying to get rid of it. And we don't realize that's really shooting ourselves in the foot and much worse, actually. It's, it's killing us spiritually. So fathers are, are very, very, very important. And all of this is in aid of or in support of the idea of what you just you brought up as love, right? Better able to experience and know a God who loves us and by extension love our brothers and our sisters. Because one of the things that I don't know is talked about is as much. Look, you speak with a great deal of clarity and precision and courage whenever I've heard you speak about anything. I think you do a, an excellent job of it. And to the extent that people might say, oh, you know, Layla did this, or it's a little bit too rough or too whatever, even what you said, hey, this may be a little controversial, I know is a way for you to, you know, kind of soften what is probably just a truth, but somebody's maybe raised their hand in the past and said, you shouldn't have said that, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. But all of this is in aid of people, of better having people experience the love of God and being able to better love you know, our brothers and sisters. I think one of the things that we don't talk about that much is that that what goes along with all these things that we're talking about is a great deal of despair that we've also seen in the data, especially of late, especially the last 20 years, especially among the young, a growing amount of despair, a growing amount of despondency that you would think would be the opposite given all of these things that we've presumably been, you know, fighting for or culture has been fighting for. And as it achieves it, it grows more despondent, more despair, right? Mm -hmm. So do, do you find that in your, tra in your travel and in your ministry and the work that you do, like coming into this idea of, of despair with people, at least as a byproduct of some of this? Oh, absolutely. So people don't have any hope. You know, there's no hope out there. And despair is real. And we see that in the numbers of suicides. Uh, they're just through the roof. Um, of course, in, in my work with divorce, you know, which is just in the last few years, I've, I've looked at that topic. But that has opened my eyes because I'm not a child of divorce and I am not divorced. But I now realize, because I have talked to so many people who are adult children of divorce and abandoned spouses as well, um, I now realize that we have millions and millions of walking wounded all around us in the culture. And, and so what we've done is 
um, with with the advent of no fault divorce and just bringing in just millions of divorce, millions of children uh, that are going through this and have gone through this even decades ago, you're, you're tearing at the fabric of society. You don't. You're, you're taking the foundation and you're ripping it for all these people, not just one or two or here or there like it used to be, where every you know the rest of society could sort of compensate for that because um, most marriages were together, most families were intact and um, the culture actually was would support the idea of an intact family rather than oh anything goes it doesn't matter um, you take away whether whether it's the father who leaves or the father who's abandoned you know and the mother now that's more likely that the mother will leave but you take away from the children uh, the protector and the provider so we all need protection. We're children, right? We're children of God. We're, we're you know, we're, we're brothers and sisters. We need our protector. We need the father figure, and we need um, someone to provide for us. You know, give us our daily bread, and uh, and that's who we are. We are relational people. We need um, what God des- had designed for us to have, and so we take men out of the picture. We take the dad out of the picture, and we say this protection and provision is not important. It doesn't matter. And then we wonder why we have so much child abuse or so much sexual abuse or, um, you know, so much uh, destitution, um, despair, like you said. I mean, these kids, uh, I'm not saying there's no despair in, in families that are intact, but I'm saying that there's a lot more when we have messed with God's design for what a child is supposed to have. And that's actually a child's right, believe it or not, it's in the catechism, that a child has a right to be... Uh, created from the union of his mother and father, their love, married mother and father, and to be raised up with those parents. So when those, when that child is stripped of his or her rights, under the guise of the adults having the right to their desires, you know, more than a child has a right to God's design, um, you're going to see darkness, a lot of darkness. And so you do get these kids who are just, you know, even some who are now in well into their adulthood, um, despairing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Cutting and acting out and suicide attempts and abortions and uh, more divorces and more broken hearts and um, so much damage and just a dark loneliness that is this uh, existential, uh, you know, isolation that they have now. And we're just not tying it back to what we Mm -hmm. should we're not. We're just saying, well, send them, you know, give them some medication or send them to the um, the modern psychology, and that's going to take care of things. Oh, it's much deeper than that. One of the the most powerful things about your book, Primal Loss, which deals with, I mean, to use your words, right, gives the a face or or a voice to this walking wounded, is that it it shares from a firsthand perspective the stories of people who have actually walked through this and are reflecting on it from from adulthood. I, I can tell you that as much as I've been steeped in these issues, and I haven't to the degree you have, but I have come across it obviously very much in ministry, it was a total blind spot that I had. The idea of, you know, I'd kind of fallen for a little bit of the mythology of, well, people are older, they can deal better with it. You know, uh, it, maybe when you're a kid, it's impactful, but later on, it kind of wears off. Can you talk about the mythology of divorce? Like, what are the pervading myths there that maybe we just take for granted? Because I know even I kind of took some of those for granted. 
Yes. And I'm going to indict myself here because I absolutely, until I was 50 years old and already very, you know, teaching the faith for years before that, um, I loved every part of the faith. I, I was against divorce in theory. I now realize it was more in theory than in practice because uh, when push came to shove, if I had a friend or a, uh, a relative who was suffering, um, you know, I didn't, we, there, we have no tools to understand how how devastating it will be uh, if they are to just be encouraged to, to divorce and move on. And yet that is kind of what we do. And uh, we don't want to see our, our friends and loved ones suffering. So even I, looking back to my shame, have been guilty of encouraging or um, not fighting for a marriage, but rather just kind of that easy, uh, you know, that easy exit ramp that we tend to give permission, you know, for those who are suffering around us. So, um, yeah, I, I had the, this blind spot and, uh, and then after talking to, again, because I, I just stumbled again in the Holy spirit, but I stumbled upon talking to a friend of mine who had all these issues from way back. I mean, she's in her forties, but her, her parents divorced when she was six and wow, what do you mean? She's still dealing with, with issues. That doesn't, that doesn't make sense. But I was listening to her and I realized she, her life is very complicated even decades later. What is this about? And then uh, I asked some some questions of people, and that's how this book got put together, Primal Loss. It was ended up being 70 people that agreed to answer some of my questions. But most of them, there were hundreds that actually first wanted to, but they couldn't emotionally even write, write down their answers. And these were simple, simple questions. Um, so what I saw, I, I did not expect to see because the mythology is, you know, well, children are resilient. I mean, and, and when your parents are happy, the children are happy. Everybody's going to be better off. Um, and all of that is untrue. And, and of course, um, the social science bears out what I'm saying to you, even secular social science. It's, it's one of those areas that's pretty cut and dry, that the suffering goes on. It doesn't just end. I think it's Judith Wallerstein, who was not religious at all. She did a study and she followed kids of divorce for 25 years. And she was shocked. She was absolutely shocked at what she found 25 years later. So it kind of comports with what I got back from these, these people of all different walks of life and different ages when their parents divorced and different circumstances, whether it was a good divorce or a really messy, awful situation. Um, the result for the child is a profound loss. You know, and even in those cases where there had to be a separation, because we know, we know that there are cases where uh, you cannot live together anymore. And and cases of danger, the church says, you know, this is in canon law, you know, uh, grave moral and uh, grave mental and uh, physical danger or unrepentant adultery, there is provision for physical separation. Um, now, the church also says, until there can be a reconciliation until those issues mm. are resolved. Sometimes they might not be resolved and someone might have to live out their life physically separated from their spouse for the rest of their life. But oftentimes, as I did a follow-up book, Impossible Marriages Redeemed, sometimes they can be uh, redeemed beautifully. So we never want to give up. The church never ever, is, in fact, in writing, it says, you know, we, we don't give up on, on marriages. But uh, 
But yeah, no, it's all a lie. There's so much, so many lies out there. Same, same thing with abortion. You know, you get so many lies and they're the same type of lie, which is, well, everything's going to be better when this is over. And it's just a once and done thing and everyone will be happier and no one really is going to suffer long term. And um, it's all just lies. So we have to step back and say, what did, again, how did God design things? What is the church teaching? And then look around with actually open eyes and see what's happening. Mm. What What's the way that you, because I'm sure you've been faced with a number of different instances where you have to tell someone in a, in a variety of different ways, this is what reality is, despite what you may believe or may think. And those are risky moments, right? Because the whole definition of being pastoral is you got to be able to tell the truth, but do it in love, right? How do you, in a world right now that has things like co-parenting and these terminology that have been kind of invented, frankly, out of whole cloth as a way to kind of better market some of these dynamics you just described, how do you do that on a practical level? How do you achieve the end of here's what the truth is and what the reality is, but do it in a way where people accept it and, 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 and take it on board. Like what's been successful to you in your, in your ministry and in your work? Right. Because it's very touchy. And, um, the whole last generation or so has been raised to feel rather than think. So the feelings are what matter. So if, if they hear you say something that is, that makes them feel convicted or um, uncomfortable, they're going to think that that you're mean, you know? So, it, it, and you could say it in the nicest and kindest and most loving way possible, but there's always going to be a danger that when you tell the truth nowadays about things that make people uncomfortable or about their, about their obligations to other people, about their obligations to God, about their obligations to um, their, their children or their own soul, they, if they are feelings based, which many people are, it's going to be difficult, even if you're being as kind and gentle as possible. They'll still think, they'll hear you as being mean. And, and that's just where we are. I mean, I've, I've had to kind of accept that. So, but if someone has even just a crack in their heart, you know, open, just a little opening, um, and people who have goodwill and they want to do the right thing, you can hopefully, and hopefully maybe you've already have a relationship with them and you could be that one voice that is maybe their conscience, which they already kind of know people still, you know, again, there's, there's a book I love called what we can't not know. And, and there are just certain things that we can't not know. And if someone just reminds us of those things, we might be the only person, the only person that's ever said to someone who's suffering, you know, I'm so sorry for your suffering. It, it is painful. It is excruciating. Let me help you. Let me, let's try to figure out, let's take divorce off the table. We could say something like that. You know, let's, let's take divorce off the table. You might have to separate, you know, maybe there'll be a physical separation for a while, but if you know that divorce is off the table, how can we now look at the situation and how can we go forward? Let's think of other options. What can we do? And then it gets them thinking, oh, well, okay, well, if we take divorce off the table, it's kind of like when you, again, I always like to say, it's like when you take abortion off the table. If we take that off the table. We're, we're not left with just happy feelings. We still have pain. There's still suffering that's going to happen, but we're going to be doing it in a way that God is going to heal us better. You know, he's going to 
uh, bless us. There's going to be something um, that, you know, a path that he's asking us to walk rather than we're breaking off completely and doing our own thing here that goes against the the moral law. So let's look at that. Let's look at that kind of pain. And then we can talk about redemptive suffering and, and how we can uh, take this pain, but have it um, be redemptive for everyone involved. And so there's so many ways we can we can talk to people who who hopefully will trust us and see that we have their their best interest at heart. Um, if we can get that that first initial conversation. So people aren't willing to do that conversation because they don't want to offend people, you know, and so they get afraid and they and they just don't do it. And so then it ends up that nobody does it. And then we could have saved a family, you know, or we could have saved a baby in the case of abortion, or we could have saved a mother from that pain or a, uh, a whole uh, a husband and a wife from being destroyed. Um, so it's tricky. It's tricky today, but we have to do it. If we don't speak the truth, who's going to do it? There's nobody else out there. The culture doesn't say it anymore. The culture has completely jettisoned Cut any concept of truth, you know, or that there's <laughs> sure. the right order. So we Catholics and Christians are left to do it. And it hurt. It is not easy. You know, I don't like doing it. It's not pleasant. Yeah. I think you hit on uh, an important uh, thing in, in the idea of relationship, though, and being that voice, being that one relationship. You know, m my wife and I, as I think you know, Layla, do uh, homeless ministry. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that she always um, tells me is the idea, and it's become kind of an insight or a thematic for us over the years, is the idea of being that one healthy relationship. Just be the one. Because it's something you can kind of, you know, tether the boat to in the storm, right? Um, Maybe you don't have faith, maybe you don't have family, maybe you don't have whatever, but you've got this one good relationship or one solid relationship. And then from that, the kind of Holy Spirit, you know, can grow and, and, and add other things that eventually can lead you to a, to, a, to a better place. And I think, you know, something similar, it sounds to me like something similar applies here because you've got this cacophony of voices in the popular culture that either drown out or completely are speaking directly contrary to that to that, you know, good, to that objective good. And, you know, maybe it's up to us, uh, or it's definitely up to us, but maybe the easy way to do it is just simply by being that one kind of port in the storm, right? That one voice, that one relationship that can that can be that thing that that person or that couple can tether to in that moment of, of, of you know, trauma and difficulty. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm thinking of the, the parable of the talents that, you know, the servants who take their talents and, you know, bury them for the master to return and some go out and invest them and make more. And we tend to think of that as like material or economic talents, but, you know, being there, having that uncomfortable conversation could be a talent, right? right? Rather than saying, oh, I'm not going to have it because I don't want to be uncomfortable. I don't want to make them uncomfortable. That could be you putting, burying your talent in the ground. Exactly. Because you might have been, you were the only one. Maybe if, if God is, is placed on your heart to say something to that person, because you know that something bad is going to happen if they go off the path and they're doing something that is not morally good, um, you're responsible if you don't say something. And again, uh, it's risky. Like you said, you know, why did he bury the talent? Well, he, I don't want to take the risk. You know, I, I could lose my, you know, I could lose my master's money. I don't want to do that. Well, it's the same thing. There's a risk. 
Um, so we just say, I'll just be quiet. I'll just, I'll just be silent. And then, and then I won't risk losing a friendship and people make up justifications and, you know, like, well, if I did say something, then I'd lose her friendship. And then, um, she'd never come to me again for other issues. Or it's like, well, no, but this is the issue. You know, this is the time that you need to be that friend that's going to tell the truth. Because of course that's the difference between a friend and a flatterer. I mean, a flatterer is just going to tell you what you want to hear all the time. And a friend is going to tell you what you don't want to hear. Um, and yes, you know, you might risk losing that friend in the process. Have there been instances where you've been that voice and someone is, or a couple or whatever has recoiled, walked away, left you and then returned? Yes. Yeah. I've had that happen. Yeah. I've had that happen a few times where, um, uh, sometimes I'll say a hard truth and I will get slammed for it. You know, even though I've said it kind of, you know, like you said, I, I speak kind of clearly, which I'm not good at making it very flowery. I mean, I'm not definitely being nasty, but I'll say something that's true, uh, kind of a macro teaching of, of our faith and of the moral law. And then I'll get slammed for it. Like, you know, who are you? You know, why would you, uh, you don't have any right to say that to me and, and, and to say that I, I, you know, and that's hateful or they'll say it's something, which it's not, but you know, that's kind of the line. And then I've had the really happy experience of sometimes years later, someone will come back to me and say, I, I get what you were saying. I'm so sorry. <laughs> like they'll actually say, thank you for saying it because it, it stayed with me. There's a, um, you know, it's not going to happen immediately. A lot of times I had a professor in college who, who taught a very rare thing, which was why contraception was immoral. And I remember at the time I'm like, well, that makes sense. Like I actually, in my mind, it made sense. Now I wasn't going to go along with it. And everybody else in the class couldn't stand this priest that taught this, could not stand him. And they thought it was terrible, but I thought, well, it, it makes sense, but I'm not going to go along with it right now. I mean, maybe someday when I'm married, I'll figure out NFP or I'll do whatever he's talking about, but I'm not going to do it now um, in my sinning years. And uh, he probably was he was older and I bet he is long gone. But what he doesn't know is that he planted a seed that came to fruition like six or seven years later. And, uh, it was the right, you know, at the right time, everything kind of came into play. And I thought, oh my gosh, father Ryan, oh my gosh. I mean, he was right. And this is why. And I, I knew it back then. So you can say things. I, I always, um, there's a saint, I don't remember which saint it was who said truth comes with graces attached. So you can speak the truth and uh, it will always have grace involved. You know, there, there will be graces involved with that truth. The truth can hurt. And again, we're not using the truth as a weapon, but we're speaking it in love. The truth can hurt, but it can never harm. That's another um, wise person told me that. Mm. So it's not up to us to say, I'm going to protect this person in cotton, you know, and wrap them up and make sure that they never feel a negative emotion. Um, can I, can I tell a quick story that, that happened? It's your show, Layla. I was, I was, this is so, this is actually really cool. I was teaching uh, a class called back to basics and I was like really in my groove. We had talked about, um, about IVF. I think it was like, uh, some, 
you know, in, in vitro fertilization. And I was teaching these Catholics who, who didn't really know. And, um, and people were nodding there, like it was making sense to them. And I'm feeling really proud, you know, I'm puffed up with my pride. Oh, I did, a, I taught a good class. And a woman came up to me afterwards and she said, um, wow, that was, that was great. You know, my, my sister and I, we both struggled with infertility and I tried to tell her, you know, not to use IVF and she did, and she had a baby and we loved this child, but I'm so glad that my husband and I, we used artificial insemination to have our child and we didn't trans transgress the moral law. And I had a second right there because there are other people waiting to talk to me and I, I'm like, oh no, I, I have to tell this, I have to deflate this wow. one. I have to, I have to say something because we hadn't talked about it. I thought that was all lumped together. I thought maybe she would, you know, that was part of it, but she didn't understand that. So I had about two seconds to say a prayer to the Holy Spirit. I said, okay. I said, oh, I'm so sorry. I said, that is that actually is also not a moral way to conceive a child. And her face kind of fell. She looked very despondent and she said, you just got really quiet. And she's like, oh, okay, thank you. And, and she walked away and I was like feeling really terrible. And then I thought, well, she's going to be back next week and we'll, we'll, we'll be able to talk more about this. Well, she never came back. And so I was just devastated. I'm like, oh no, is she going to leave the church? Is she, you know, what, what's happening here? This is how God works. It was about, I'd say two years later, I'm reading my diocesan newspaper and there's a full color spread on um, things on the moral issues of, of artificial reproduction. And there's color pictures and, and, and I'm reading and there's a picture of two sisters with their children who are now a little bit older. And these sisters are telling the story about how they went to confession and, and really understood that the way they went about infertility treatment was not moral. And they went to confession and they started living the way that you know Christ asked them to live. And they really understood the faith now and they were so grateful. And there was a little thing in there. I, I recognized the lady as one of the sisters. And there was a little thing and she said, yeah, I went to a class one day and and I learned that, that, that this was immoral, you know, the way that I had also done it and my sister as well. And that was God's way of just showing me years later. I was like, whatever happened to that woman? I mean, again, I didn't deserve to know. It wasn't like we all get to know the fruit of our of what we say. But that was God's little way of just being, a, a, it was a consolation to me. Beautiful consolation. That I didn't drive her from the church, right? Because that's like the fear is like, that's it. She's out. She's done. Amen. This kind of seems like the opposite happened. It seems like a lot of fruit happened as a result. A ton of fruit. And they were back in and they were teaching the faith to others. And it was, they were happy and their children were beautiful and, and nobody was rejecting their children. I mean, it was absolutely as good as it gets. And so... Thank you, Lord. But that just shows that when you're in the moment and you're thinking, I could destroy everything here if I speak the truth, you can't worry about the outcome. You just have to gently, gently speak the truth when you when you have the opportunity in a difficult situation and then let God deal with the outcomes. That's not our it's not our 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 place to worry about the outcomes. Yeah, we can plant and water, but it's God that gives the growth, as St. Paul says. Yes. One of the the things that you just triggered in my mind, too, is this idea of a lot of the times, maybe counterintuitively, the person who you're delivering the truth to already knows. They know on probably on, on at least two, on at least one level, but maybe two. One is we all kind of know in the way that we're built in the image and likeness of God and we know the difference between good and evil at some level, right? We understand those things at some level, even if we're not, 
you know, walking in faith, etc. The other way that we can know is if we actually do know we've done the thinking, but nevertheless, we're still trying to hold on to a previous position or... You know, this happens a lot when, um, you know, people convert, you know, ministers of, a, of one faith convert to another or convert to become Catholic is that they they kind of knew it. They knew it for a while, but mm. there's so many of the trappings of everyday life that it just makes it difficult for them to kind of move into that role. So, so, so a lot of people may know this truth um, already, uh, you know, like you did with your college professor, this idea of like, yeah, that makes sense. I'm still not going to do it, but it makes total sense, right? Yeah. Yeah. I was talking to to uh, to a friend. I won't name him, but I was talking to a friend uh, recently about the uh, Texas rule, the Supreme Court ruling on the Texas law for abortion. And you know, we got into this discussion. He's pro-choice. We got into this discussion, and as we talked about it, I could tell that what was happening was he was hearing his own position on abortion, maybe for the first time. And I, you know, I was asking questions. So, okay, well, you believe that in, you know, that all things being equal, the life of the child, because you did, he did conceive that life began at conception. Okay. The life of the child is not as valuable as the life of the woman. And we went through this whole conversation and basically he ended up netting, netting out saying, yeah, I, I do believe that. And he was very resolute about it. I do believe that. But my prayer and my thought was at that moment, hearing that, right, hearing that position, that it could begin to kind of be that seed, right, that God would water and then come to some point where he maybe realizes, like, actually, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. Because, you know, but these things happen, right? People will 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 either hear things that they know are true and choose to do something different. Everybody who's ever, you know, had a late night dessert knows it's not good for them. They do it anyway, right? Or you have people who um, maybe just haven't vocalized or heard themselves say what their position is. And as they do more and more, it can kind of like— Maybe it hits home. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Because if you hear yourself saying that some human lives are more inherently valuable than others, what is the implication for every genocide that's ever occurred? You know, it's mind boggling and it's a very hard place to be. Um, And then the conscience can do its work. So, uh, you know, you won't be able to really let that go once that's seeped into your conscience and you you kind Mm. of are confronted with, uh, what you've what you've done, like you, you have to own that idea and and extrapolate, and it is uncomfortable. Um, so yes, yes, it's. Uh, I, I years and years ago, even before I reverted, I, I knew that there was an objective truth. I had co- I had finally come to that conclusion. I'm like, okay, yeah, there's an objective truth, and so I was pro life. And a friend and I, and she had not yet converted because she was a friend that was becoming Catholic, but we had a newspaper column. We had an actually an editorial column in the Phoenix paper, the Arizona Republic. And we, again, we weren't going to church. We weren't doing anything like that, but we knew there was truth and we would write, and she used to be a radical feminist, but we were both pro-life at this point. And we wrote, um, a few pro-life columns. And so we would get these letters. This is before the internet. This was in the mid nineties. And we get these letters from people who didn't like, or did like either way, what we wrote. And one young man would write us and say, you know, you know, you, you don't care about the women and blah, blah, blah. And all this about, you know, it was just all the pro-choice kind of rhetoric. And so we wrote him back and we said, okay, but deep, deep, deep down, aren't you sort of glad that someone somewhere is sticking up for the unborn? Somewhere, I mean, just mm. there's just a couple voices. Maybe we're the only two out here really on, you know, in the, in the newspaper biz or whatever. And he wrote back and he said, you know what? I actually am glad. You're right. 
And we were like, well, we thought you might be. I mean, again, it was, it's an instinct. Like, <laughs> you can't really not want anyone to stick up for these babies, right? And so somewhere in his mind was the truth that somebody had to stick up for the voiceless, the defenseless. And we hope that, you know, that really stirred up his conscience. But it was a, it was a chance we took asking him that question. But I'm like, he's got to be. They've got to be thankful that someone is speaking for the babies. And sure enough, so... I'm I'm working my way through uh, your friend's conversion story. Mm. Uh, the 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 feminist to uh, to, to Catholic, Catholic. One that you're that you're citing right now. Yes, I'm not done with it though, but uh, but it's super interesting. It's so great because objective truth really brought her um, brought her to the church because that that's where um, it, Trent Horn and I from Trent, from Catholic Answers we we wrote a book for for parents, but it's really also to catechize the parents. And it's how to teach kids the tough moral issues. And it's based on natural law. And natural law is very simple. And it is something you can use with atheists, uh, uh, agnostics, Protestants, Hindus, Muslims. Everyone can understand the natural law, which again is God's design. It's how things are made. What is the purpose of a thing? Um, what is this thing for? And we know that from the things we create, like a comb or a phone or a brush or you know whatever. But also what God creates, like us. You know, what are we for? What's our body for? What what is marriage for? It's not that complicated, and we've complicated everything. So um, so part of her her story was basically where she just realized there is truth. Once you know there's truth, it's actually kind of a, a straight shot into the Catholic Church. Eventually, you'll get there if that's what you're. We're looking for truth. I've told this story a number of times, but one time when I was on a business dinner um, with a colleague of mine, work, you know, very corporate kind of business meal with clients, and there was probably 10 people around the table, all the trappings, and everybody was just, you know, having wine and a good time. And um, at some point, the conversation turned slightly philosophical, which doesn't always happen in the, in the career I came up with. I came up in media and advertising, so we're not talking very often about heady things, right. Leila, but... Um, <laughs> In any, in any case, um, the conversation turned at one point to philosophy and somebody said, well, you know, I don't, I don't believe that there's anything like an absolute truth. And, you know, m my point, like I'm kind of half listening, talking to somebody else and I kind of turned around and I said, well, except for that statement, right? There you go. And it, the, the whole table just stopped talking, right? And I was like, what do you mean? I was like, well, you know, if there is no absolute truth, then how can what you just said actually be true? It's got to be grounded on something. And it was it was so simple, right? These kind of moments of grace, certainly probably for me, that just like throw that out there, but they can become that seedbed from which hopefully other things uh, you know, can grow. But it is it is incumbent upon us, right, to to take that maybe that uncomfortable shot, right? Going back to what we were talking about earlier and doing doing the uh, you know, what may look impossible, but uh but but trying it. And if you can get past the initial discomfort and, and fear, because it's a fear of, I know, that, that people won't like you or they're going to get mad at you or your neighbors will ostracize you, it, the more courage you show, the more you do this, it's, you know, you got, it's like the spiritual muscles, you know, the, the, the courageous, you know, muscles, you've got to practice that. The more you do it, it's, it's never going to be just totally a breeze, but it'll get a lot easier and, um, and you'll get... God is very kind and generous and he will, um, he'll give you consolations. You know, you're never just left out there. If, if, if you're meant to say something, um, 
you know, he'll he'll console you in some way for doing it. You're you're not just flapping in the wind and he's just abandoning you. And so it's really important, especially for parents, to be able to say things, not not hammering people and constantly talking about it or bringing it up out of nowhere. And but like you said, it was a perfect opportunity. You're in a conversation or you hear this thing and it's, you know, it's 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 the opportunity you have to say something. Because our kids are listening too. And if our kids don't see that we have the courage of our convictions, if they don't see that the adults, the you know, mom and dad, can stand up a little bit to the neighbors or the you know, school teacher or the school board or whatever, if they don't see that, how do we expect a teenager or someone to grow into someone who can do that? They, why would they yeah. ever do that if their parents don't show them the way and, and take that chance? So- um, so we have to get a little more courageous, and it is very scary. It's, it is. I, I acknowledge it is very scary, but it does get easier, and it gets better, and you will feel you know, more at peace when you know that you're doing the right thing, even when it's difficult. And isn't that what all generations you know, kind of before us knew that? You, know, you do the right thing. It might not be comfortable, but we want to do the right thing. Um, Absolutely. How does that courageousness play into the idea of uh, – redeeming an impossible marriage. Your latest book is Impossible Marriage is Redeemed. And I'm thinking that that idea of, you know, truth and love and speaking courageously and going against the grain factors in pretty mightily in something like an impossible marriage. What is an impossible marriage, right. I guess? From So, yeah, the impossible marriages are all those types of marriages that have issues that are so serious that most people, including most Catholics, would just say, get out, divorce, annul, move on. This was not good. You're, this is bad. Everything about it, you have every right not to, to hang on to this. Um, in fact, the best thing you can do is divorce. You know, it's almost a virtuous thing. And things like, you know, there's addiction. My gosh, we have so much addiction out there, right? Addiction and abuse and emotional abuse and um, adultery. Gosh, there's so much infidelity in these stories that I put together. And um, all of those things can be redeemed. Now, if we say that they can't, then we are not Catholic. Because frankly, if we are not a, a people of redemption, then we are no one. We, who are we? What are we? How are we different than the secular culture? So, um, what I what I what I've done is I've, I've put together the people who've who've done it. They they've said I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna end the story in the middle. You know that's the subtitle of the book. They didn't end the story in the middle. And uh, whereas everyone would say it's hopeless, they say I, I don't believe it's hopeless. It's not hopeless. I'm going to stand for my vow. I made, I made a vow, just like a priest would make a vow. You know, a priest encounters incredible difficulty in his vocation. Sure. We could encounter terrible difficulty. And again, we've talked about sometimes that may require physical separation and that's okay. The church has said that's okay in these very extreme situations. It's all right. Um, but the vow stands. I mean, the, this promise is, that's a sacred promise you made to be faithful till death, you know, to love this person till death. And you can't just love someone until they become unlovable and then kick them to the side because that's not mm. what Christ did for us. Like if he did, we'd all be kicked to the side because we're pretty <laughs> exactly. unlovable, right? And so um, so if we give it the time that a marriage needs, which is a lifetime, 
we can see it go through different phases, including terrible things, including adulterous phases or phases of addiction or phases of, you know, terrible screaming and yelling and horrible things. And, um, and we can carry that cross through to the other side. And then when we see what, what God does, we can see even a better marriage than was at the beginning. And, and to say, well, that's just impossible and that's ridiculous. We, we know people like this all around us. You could ask any married couple and the ones that don't have their story out there because they didn't get divorced, they're going to tell you something horrible that happened in their marriage, you know, and, and say, but this is how we overcame it. This is how we worked past this. This is how we carried our cross and we, and we redeemed it. And uh, so, so that, that book is just chock full of stories like that. And it's usually when we start to look at ourselves and stop always looking at the other spouse and what terrible, terrible mm. things they're doing. And, and usually really when it comes down to it, I mean, there are terrible things, but a lot of times we even blow it up even further and we don't realize, okay, this is a sinful person, but I'm a sinful person too. And I'm not being virtuous and good. And so let me just, let me just take care of my, myself, you know, let me look at what I'm doing. And then once that person starts to change, it's incredible how, how often the other person starts to change. Um, so there's just a lot that we can do that we don't think we can. And a lot of uh, redemption that happens and God wants for us that we throw away and we don't, we don't look at it. Uh, there is, um, I'll just throw this out there because I love it. It's such, it's such a different mindset than we have now. But Fulton Sheen has a, a YouTube, there's a YouTube video. Someone put a Fulton Sheen talk, which is called um, uh, Marriage Problems. And it is incredible. And that's where I got the title for the book because he talks about impossible marriages. And through the course mm. of this talk, he never, and he talks about um, physical sickness, you know, if, you're, if your spouse gets ill and... Um, cruelty in marriage. It talks about moral sickness. It talks about, which obviously would be something like alcoholism or, you know, just these different things. And never once in his talk does he talk about divorce, which today we would be like anybody would say, and you know, if it gets really bad, just you, you're going to need to get divorced. And, and it's okay. In some sectors, you might, you might start with that. And you often would start with that. Yeah. In fact, that is the default in many places now. And it made me realize looking back, listening to his brilliance, and he's talking about redemptive suffering and he's talking about Christ and he's talking about the saints and he's talking about the cross and he's talking about how Christians are different from the rest of the world and here's why. And it's a supernatural understanding of things and this is how God works and grace. And, and he's so different from what we hear today. And, but it's so convicting, it's captivating. And if we wanna say, well, we don't believe that anymore, well, then we have to say we don't believe our faith anymore because that is what our faith has been from the beginning. And so we've got to stop thinking with the mind of the culture and start thinking with the mind of Christianity again. And it's really hard for us to do because we're really conditioned to think like the secular culture mm. when it comes to marriage and we don't know what marriage is anymore. So, um, but yeah, it's redemption is possible. It's beautiful. And it is, it, it will change a, a community, a parish, uh, a city, you know, you just have one marriage redeemed from the brink and everything changes and those children there for generations yeah, everything changes it's absolutely 
it's absolutely transformative, and I can definitely attest to it in, in, in my own marriage, and I'm sure you have scores of examples yourself. It's a reason why I like the title as much as I do. It's on my reading list. I haven't read it yet, but Impossible Marriages, because, uh, of course, our God is a God of possibility. Nothing is impossible to God, and this is a great way to remind us that even in those most difficult you know places, if you just give up, you're leaving the story in the middle, which I think is the point. Um, so, you know, looking forward to, to reading that one. Layla, I know we only have you for an hour. So um, we're going to need to, and an hour goes pretty quickly when, when you're having fun. Yes. But uh, before we get to uh, to our final segment to uh, wait what, I wanted to just make sure the folks knew, you know, how to, how to, how to follow your work, um, the, the things that you're most excited about, the more recent things, just, you know, what would you say uh, is, are the things that have are top of mind for you right now? So I, I blogged for a long time at Little Catholic Bubble, and that's still out there in archives, um, littlecatholicbubble.blogspot.com. But I've, I've transitioned over to um, laylamiller.net. So it's L-E-I-L-A, miller.net. And I do blogging there. I like to give my ideas. I just like to break things down in simple ways because that's how I understand things. I need, to, I need clarity and the church is wonderful on clarity, but but sometimes we get confused because all the voices and so so I will blog and, and just do do issues of of things that are important and, and just try to make them as clear as possible. Um, so uh, and then of course I, I have the the books that I've written, which you can find on the on the uh, website. Um, I do have a Facebook presence um, that you know is more day to day. You know what I'm thinking that day. Um, but that would be my personal my personal page rather than I do have a writer's page on Facebook, but I don't use that as much. But my personal page is hopping <laughs> usually. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so that's it. And other than that, I just um, kind of do my mothering and grandmothering and and uh, Dean and I are just hanging out trying to trying to be as as prepared and and as as prayerful as we can in really interesting times. so. Amen. Well, we'll have a, in the show notes a link to all of your books, to Primal Loss and Raising Chase Catholic Men, Made This Way, and of course, Impossible Marriages Redeemed, the latest one. We'll have links to the site. And actually, I don't remember exactly now, but um, I'll ask you afterwards the um, the title of, I think, the book you referenced that you really liked. You said, I really like this book, and I forget exactly which one it was, but we'll add that one to the show notes as well um, afterwards. But, um, you know, I, yeah. <laughs> we'll It'll figure it out. <laughs> But but I do um, you know just one just one man's opinion. But I do love um, the the clarity uh, of the way that you speak and the way that you write. It's a very um, direct and um, and clear, but also from a point of generosity and of goodwill. And you know I think we need more of that. So uh, you know that. I commend you on the work that you've done so far, and encourage everybody to become avail themselves of everything that you've uh, that you've written and to follow your work. Okay, Layla, you ready to play? I'm Wait, nervous. What? I'm so nervous. Okay, yeah. All right, here we go. Okay. First question: True or false? Pius the Eleventh, okay. the author of the encyclical Casti Canubi, which stressed, among other things, the sanctity of marriage, which we've talked about quite a bit, mm-hmm. was himself a paleographer. True or false? He was a paleographer. Do you need a hint on what paleographer is? Because I did. Yes. Give me a lifeline. All right. Paleographers are specialists who decipher 
localize, date, and edit ancient and medieval texts. Those that are written by hand so that it can make them available for others to read and understand. So true or false, Pope Pius XI, the author of Cassiocanubi, was a paleographer. Because it's so niche, I'm going to say yes. I'm going to say yes. And you would be right. It is actually... He absolutely was. It was actually after ordination, but apparently he had a fascination with these medieval texts that we see in beautiful calligraphy, and he would translate that so that regular people like me could actually read and understand what it actually means. All right. Very good. Question number two. All right. Layla, which of these couples is not a marriage of canonized saints? Which is not a marriage of canonized saints? Number one. Saints Louis Martin and Zelie Guerin, the 19th century parents of St. Therese of Lisieux. Number two, St. Luigi and St. Maria Beltram, a 20th century couple that opted against an abortion during a difficult pregnancy, and the Lord rewarded them with three more kids, all of which, by the way, had a vocation to either priesthood or religious life. Or, lastly, St. Vincent and St. Waldertrudis, 7th century saints, who famously chose continents and each entered religious life after their kids were grown. Which of those three is not a marriage of canonized saints? St. Louis Martin and Zelie, St. Luigi and St. Maria, or St. Vincent and St. Walder Trudis? Okay, I'm going to go with my gut that the middle couple, maybe they are beatified and maybe they're blessed, but I'm going to say they're not yet canonized. Are you looking at my notes? I am not. I promise you. Because <laughs> you Is are right? very, you are absolutely right. Oh yes, they are in that fact was a complete guess. They're in fact the first couple in the history of the church to be beatified together. They're beatified oh together, gosh. but they are blesseds and they're not yet canonized. That is amazing. I Layla, love you're batting a thousand, which is very unusual for this segment. So uh, congratulations. Let's see if we can go all the way home. Question number three. And there's always a time travel question, Layla. Always a time travel question. Okay. Okay. You're able to travel back to your ostensibly Catholic university during the mid-1980s. And without rupturing the space-time continuum, you're able to stand in for yourself in one of the classes you originally skipped or ditched. Okay. Which class is it? And do you have some words for the professor? I would be standing in my sociology class with a feminist, now that I think back, there was a feminist who was teaching uh, about the equality, even then, of homosexual marriage and that that might be a good thing. Um, And I would tell her to pack her things immediately and get off this Catholic campus. <laughs> what are you thinking, lady? Um, yeah, so I think, I think that's what I would tell her because now I'm thinking, I wonder how many classes she taught. Honestly, I actually dropped that class because of that. And I wasn't, again, I was a big sinner at the time and not really going to mass, but I was like, that's not right. And I actually ended up <laughs> dropping. So if, I'm gonna use that as the ditching. Like I ditched it for the rest of the semester by dropping. Very nice, that's sociology? You said? That was sociology. Sociology. I took sociology class too. I think it was like the sociology of family or something. And it was just complete. Wow. It was heresy. (laughs) Well, so now you get the chance to set the record straight. Very good. Well, Layla, what a privilege and a pleasure it was to have you on the show. Um, Really, God bless your ministries and continue to prosper them. And 
Uh, you're welcome to come by, obviously, anytime on this show. And we're, we're happy that you're out there talking about the sanctity and importance of matrimony and speaking with it with clarity and love and conviction. And all those things are, are wonderful. We need more of it. So thank you for, for being a guest on the show. Thank you, Deacon, so much. And thank you to your wonderful wife. You two are doing amazing things. So I'm, I'm very honored to have been here speaking with you today. Awesome. If you're listening out there, please make sure to subscribe and share this show with family and friends. Please help us grow. And we'll see you again next time on another episode of Living the Call. If you enjoyed this episode of Living the Call, please remember to subscribe and give us a five-star review. Tell someone you love about the show and spread the word. Living the Call is available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. You can learn more about the organization behind the show by searching for the Catholic Association of Latino Leaders on any social platform or by going directly to call-usa.org. That's C-A-L-L-U-S-A.org. Living the Call is produced by Manu Castan and Diego Carranza and our friends at Juan Diego Networks. God bless you and thank you for listening.